0: Amen. You may be seated. Last month, my wife Katie and I went on a weekend trip to Miami Beach, and it was partially um, Katie's Christmas present to me and partially a baby moon. And uh, we're really glad we went to Miami before the baby comes because we quickly learned Miami is not the type of place to take a child to. But our second morning there, we decided it would be a good idea to get some breakfast snacks, head to the beach, and just enjoy creation. And so we're just walking around the restaurants, looking into different shops, seeing what the Lord has in store for us. And from the sidewalk, I see this chocolate croissant that I knew I needed. (laughs) So we buy the croissant, we buy a fruit cup, we get some coffee, and we head to the beach. And Once we're there, we we realize what a picturesque moment it was. All of God's beautiful creation, the sun rising to meet the day, the ocean waves crashing, the sand on the beach, the croissant, it was all beautiful (laughs) and created by the Lord. Enamored by the beauty we were unaware of, the danger, and as Katie took the photo, a bold seagull crashed beak first into my croissant. <laughs> and then a swarm of seagulls came, and it was it was terrifying and funny and a little bit of everything. And um, so we get to safety. I leave Katie s- safely on the beach to eat her fruit cup while I go buy another croissant. That's <laughs> the type of croissant we're talking about. and. Uh, When I get back, I asked Katie if she was able to eat the rest of her fruit without any further seagull attacks. And she said, yes, I kept my head on a swivel. Uh, During that trip, I had been praying about this sermon. I said, that's my illustration. There we go. (laughs) This verse 13 from the Lord's Prayer, which we will ponder and wrestle with this morning. This is Jesus teaching us to ask of the Father that he would keep our heads on a swivel to guard us, to protect us against the temptation and the sin that so easily entangles. As a side note, uh, thanks to iPhone Live Photo technology, I actually have the picture of the seagull eating micro so if that's the type of thing you would like to see, we'll chat during coffee hour after service. We have been journeying through the Lord's Prayer since the beginning of the year, primarily asking two questions. Number one, what does this prayer from Jesus teach us about Jesus? And also, what does this prayer from Jesus teach us about prayer? What is is his design in this model? In our series, we have learned that God is our Father, and his heart's desire is to be related to and also communicated to in this way. That heaven and earth are already coexisting, and every time we pray to the Lord, heaven is coming a little bit closer to earth. That God desires to be in the details of our lives to provide for us everything we need, even today, and that God desires to forgive us and desires that we would offer forgiveness to those who have trespassed against us. And this morning, as we come to an end in our series, we'll be wrestling with verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I use the phrase wrestle pretty intentionally. This short verse shines a very bright light on our cycles of sin, in our habits of temptation. These 11 words bring us face-to-face with Temptation, but especially the temptations we have grown a little too comfortable with. If you're like me, some avoidance behavior tendencies start to surface when conversations of sin or temptation arise and start to get a little fidgety, a little uncomfortable. I try to find a way to change the subject. When Jesus was speaking with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, he shines this same loving light on her sin, revealing to her that he knows she has been married five times and is now with a man who is not her husband. And in classic human avoidance, she acknowledges and then shifts. Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Switch to theology. Our answer is worshipped over here. You Jews say we need to worship over here. When it comes to avoiding the sin conversation, theology, if we're being honest, is the easiest, quickest distraction we can look to. It is just holy enough to not change the conversation completely, and yet abstract enough that it takes the attention off of me. And thus, we can become masters of deflection when the important and necessary conversation of sin and temptation comes our way. In the first few days of meditating on this verse, I I realized the way this verse was starting to shine a light in my own sin cycles and habits of temptation. And I distracted myself with this unnecessary theological question of what role does God play in my temptation? And reading through about a half dozen commentaries, I formed a very neat, cohesive, coherent, beautiful theology, only to have the seventh commentary crush it all. The seventh commentary pointed out that this text fundamentally has nothing to do with whether or not God is actually literally playing a role in our temptation. This verse is all about sinful people like me, like you, coming to Jesus, coming to our Father, asking for guidance away from sin and temptation. This is the main point of verse 13, that we are asking God to keep our heads on a swivel after Jesus shines the gracious light of love and mercy on the sin of the Samaritan woman he reveals to her that he is the Messiah the first time he does it in all of the Gospels and it's interesting that the first person Jesus allows into this circle is a Samaritan woman who has been married five times well on her way to her sixth, and has a tendency to avoid the hard conversations Perhaps the prerequisite to understanding and appreciating the good news of the Savior is first to come to acceptance that I'm a sinner who needs to be saved. Long introduction, forgive me. All of that to say, let's approach this verse through this perspective. The perspective that I have cycles of temptation and habits of sin deeply embedded in my heart, known and unknown to me, and that my loving Father in heaven desires to heal me and to save me now and forever. So here are the three points I want to explore this morning, danger, hunger, and guidance. Point one, danger is a warning and also an encouragement on the truest intention of our text In short, this prayer is dangerous because God desires to answer it with a resounding yes. To pray for God to lead us away from temptation indicates that my natural disposition is to not just walk towards temptation, but more often than not, to run towards it. And I need God's help to escape from this disposition. This is why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want to do, and the thing that I don't want to do is what I end up doing. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. And if it's true for the Apostle Paul, it's most definitely true for me, and it might just be true for you. If we take time to reflect, even on yesterday, even on this morning, we know and agree with Paul that we frequently do the things we do not want to do and fail to do the good things that we want to. And this verse from the Lord's Prayer acknowledges that we, as humans, have a natural inclination toward temptation, even and especially when we're unaware of it. I've heard that our former late pastor John used to say that a prayer God will always answer, yes to, is a prayer for God to reveal our sins to us. I didn't hear that directly from John, but it's one of those sentences that's simple yet profound, and it's like, yeah, of of course that is something that John said. That's what this verse is asking of God. We are like, God is like an artist, and we are a block of marble the Lord desires to chisel away the parts of our lives that don't need to be there anymore especially temptation until only a masterpiece stands before him but the danger is that the chisel and the hammer are painful in praying this verse we are inviting God to shine that loving light of grace on our sins on our temptations so that he can remove them. Here's the danger. This loving light is dangerous because it challenges the status quo in the ways that we cope with daily life. This light of love will shine brightly on what we say and how we say it. This gracious light will shine brightly on what we think that we need to rest, relax, unwind. This light of mercy will shine brightly on what we watch and how we engage with social media. This light of love will shine brightly in the innermost crevices of our hearts. Not that these things are inherently bad or that they're inherently sin, but this verse from the Lord's Prayer is not actually about sin so much, it's about the temptation. This prayer really wants to interfere with the daily ways that our hearts flirt with temptation. And that's dangerous for the status quo of my daily life. And for that, we thank God for this verse. Here's the good news about this danger. This danger reveals and calls us to accept that our hearts long to be filled, our hearts long to be made whole, and that we have tried to fill it and fix it with things that have never satisfied. That is the good news. Maybe you're here this morning as someone who is exploring the Christian faith, but would not call yourself a Christian. Perhaps that curiosity you feel in your heart is not so much curiosity as much as it is longing, longing for something eternal. Or perhaps you're here this morning as someone who has been in church for years and perhaps you come time and time again because you know that there's still work in our hearts that the Lord is doing. The call for both groups is one and the same. To let go of the temptation to fix and to fill our hearts and to pray to the God who created that heart. He can guide it. He can heal it. He can save it. This is point one. There is a danger in letting go of cycles of sin and temptation, but those who are willing to surrender it are those who pray, verse 13. God, guide us not into our cycles of temptation, but deliver us from evil. This now leads us to our second point of hunger. This point is is found in the subtext of our text Our verse is at the end of the Lord's Prayer, which is in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, which extends from Matthew 5 through 7. And at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus opens up with the Beatitudes. Uh, And then those Beatitudes are largely paralleled in the rest of his sermon. And what Jesus is teaching in one of those Beatitudes is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And this is the Beatitude that parallels our subtext, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, because the person who prays this to the God who wants to answer it is, first and foremost, aware of the danger, and therefore, number two, they genuinely want to change. If they are aware of what they have to give up and what is being asked of them when they pray this, they must want God to intervene The person who prays this to the God who wants to answer the prayer is a person who has grown weary of their cycles of temptation and their patterns of sin, and so they pray to God for guidance. I have the opportunity to serve as a chaplain at the Whosoever Gospel Mission, and the the mission is a homeless shelter in Germantown uh, who serves men who are homeless and more often than not overcoming addiction. And so in my vocation, I get to hang out with about 50 men who are all in addiction recovery. They have a lot of different thoughts about what addiction recovery would look like, should look like, will look like, but the starting point they all agree with. The starting point to recovery is admitting that one has a problem. And the same is true for us. We are all recovering sinners. Our vices may look slightly different than the population I serve at the mission, but we have vices nonetheless. And verse 13 is illustrating that we can come to God praying for relief from those vices, those temptations, those sins, asking Him for guidance out of it, and He will say yes the beauty of the beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied, is that it's a promise. It's an absolute. Not that we might sometimes be satisfied or that we'll be satisfied today and dissatisfied tomorrow. It's an absolute promise that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who pray to the Lord saying, God, guide me out of this, they will be satisfied in the Lord. And so one of the questions we have been asking during this series is what this prayer teaches us about prayer itself. And from this verse, we learn that prayer is a space in which we can come to the Father with the good, the bad, and the ugly. We can come to Him with our concern for evil. We can come to Him with honesty about the temptations and cycles of sin in which we stumble. And we can come to Him with our genuine desire for righteousness, our hunger Our thirst. God doesn't just want part of us. All of us is what he desires. And with full assurance, we can come knowing that God will say, yes, for he who promised is faithful. And this leads us to our third point of guidance. This point is found embedded in the text itself. From cover to cover, God is portrayed as the one who guides his people he guided the israelites out of egypt he guided the psalmist to quiet waters and green pastures the restoration of the soul he also guided that psalmist to the darkest valley he guided saul to damascus and fearful ananias to come and pray over saul at damascus god guides his people and in our verse god is guiding us his church away from temptation and away from evil Another beauty in this verse is that we are not merely passive recipients of God's guidance. We're asking for it. We are praying for God to intervene and change the direction. Another question we have been asking during this series is what the prayer teaches us about Jesus, whom this prayer comes from. And this tells us that Jesus desires to be our guide. In the same way he guided the Israelites out of Egypt The psalmist, Saul, Ananias, so the same he wants to guide us. Jesus, full of love and tender mercy, desires to shepherd us away from our cycles of temptation and guide us towards a more whole and abundant future. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The beauty of this verse, another beauty of this verse, is uh, found in the verbs and the nouns. Lead and deliver, two verbs, both indicating that God is the one doing the action. Lead, deliver. There comes a time in our journey out of the sin cycle, out of the habitual temptation, when we realize we can't overcome this on our own, no matter what we do. And this is the moment that we turn to the Lord and pray, verse 13, for guidance out of the cycle. And so we've established that Jesus desires to be our guide. And so this begs the question, how? How does Jesus actually do this? Spiritual disciplines and community are two of the ways that I see in this text. Ultimately we look to the model of Jesus and in this we find that overcoming temptation can be done through the disciplines. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted and tried as we are yet without sin. After Jesus is baptized, his launch into ministry starts in the wilderness. Matthew chapter four tells us that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And in preparation for this temptation, he fasted for 40 days. The tempter then came to Jesus and tempted him in three ways. Interestingly, the most common ways that we ourselves and all of humanity are tempted, the call for self-made provisions, position, and status. And it's interesting that Satan shows up as the very thing the world says that we should pursue, the very things that the world says will satisfy. The reality is that if we were to reduce Satan to a red man with horns and a pitchfork, we won't be prepared when Satan actually shows up as the very thing our deceitful hearts think it needs the most. Jesus overcame these temptations by looking to the scriptures. Every time Satan tempted, he responded with a passage from Deuteronomy with that saying, along with the psalmist, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's the first example. Um, But that example forms a little bit of skepticism within me uh, of saying, that's Jesus. Of course, Jesus is going to be the one who can overcome temptation through the disciplines. Here's another example that might ease our skepticism. A couple weeks ago, I was having a conversation with one of the residents in our program at the mission who gave me permission to share this story. We'll call him James, not his real name. James is a 43 year old man who struggles with alcoholism and violent anger issues. In 2023, he tried our program three times The first time, he was asked to leave for hiding a bottle of liquor under his bed. The second time, he was asked to leave for starting a really nasty fight where we had to tear his hands off of another man's throat. When he returned in the fall of 2023, we started to meet together weekly. In our conversation two weeks ago, he was telling me about a really terrible day he had the day before. Nonchalantly, he went through about six things that went wrong with his day, but the seventh and eighth really caused me concern. He told me that the job that he had in the bag uh, was actually given to his friend, and they chose him over James. He's also been in the process of making amends with his children, and although some of them accepted his apology, his daughter said, I need you out of my life by text message. I asked James what he did to deal with the emotional weight of his Tuesday, and he said, I I spent some time journaling about Psalm 46, how God is my refuge and my strength, how my job is to be still and to know that he is God. His version was to sit back and recognize, but. I spent some time in prayer for my daughter, and then in the evening, I went to a 12-step meeting. I knew what the next answer was gonna be, but it uh, hadn't quite occurred to James yet, and so I asked, how would you have dealt with the emotional weight of your Tuesday if this were four months ago? He chuckled and said, I I would have had a couple drinks. At this exact moment, It dawned on him that his old cycles of anger and turning to the bottle were being replaced with Holy Communion with the Father. And overwhelmed by the love of the Father, he broke into tears. And with tears rolling down his face, he remarked, This is kind of scary. I said, Yeah, it is. This man who has turned to the bottle for 31 years is now turning to the Scriptures. He is turning to Jesus through the disciplines and finding true, eternal freedom. Jesus desires to guide us out of temptation through the disciplines, not because they prove how good I am, how disciplined I am, how good I am at crossing something off my spiritual to-do list, God works through the disciplines because they center us in his holy, sacred presence. They bring us before a father who longs and would love to journey with you in the spiritual pilgrimage. I believe this is why Eugene Peterson talks about the disciplines as Jesus' unforced rhythms of grace. If you're interested in further study on the disciplines, I I would recommend Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline. I have also heard that Dallas Willard's The Spirit of Disciplines is also excellent. But prayer, reading, meditating on scripture, journaling, community, solitude, silence, and many others. God wants to use these things to bring us into his presence so that our minds will be transformed and our lives renewed. And Jesus also guides us away from temptation through community. Our verb lead in verse 13 is found two other times in the gospels, one of them occurring in Luke chapter five. It's a story of the paralyzed man and his four friends. The four men are carrying the paralyzed man on his mat to have an encounter with Jesus. When they arrive at the house, they are unable to enter because of the crowd And that's where the verb comes in. They led the man to Jesus. And when they could not enter, they go to the roof. And they cut through and they lower the man through the roof tiles to Jesus. And the paralyzed man ultimately finds his healing in Jesus. But it was his community that led him to the feet of Jesus. And it was a community that was pretty relentless. We also get a sense of community In the use of the nouns, us, in verse 13, lead us, deliver us. This isn't an individualistic call to away from temptation. On the contrary, Jesus' use of the plural us indicates he wants this to be lived out in community. It's how he designed it, And, and we find community right here in the church. And praise God for this, because in the church we find belonging. Fellowship, and a whole lot of accountability. In the church, we find community. And so, Jesus desires to guide us away from temptation and into life. And the epitome of this eternal truth is the cross. At the cross, we find a Savior who loves you so dearly much that he would lay down his own life so that you can be eternally freed from sin and temptation, and what I love most is that not once has he ever regretted this decision. Those who want to be guided by Jesus out of temptation pray verse 13, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Jesus guides to freedom those who are hungry for righteousness those who are willing to accept the dangerous act of surrendering their cycles of temptation. These are the people who pray, verse 13. This Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, which marks the beginning of Lent, an ancient journey for the season leading up to Easter, where we celebrate Jesus' Jesus' sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection. It's a common practice during Lent to fast from something and then devote that time to one's relationship with our Father. So here's my application for you this morning. Spend the next three days praying verse 13 of the Lord's Prayer, asking God to show you where temptation has been present in your life, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. And then on Ash Wednesday, begin to fast from that for the next Forty days. The best definition I have heard for fasting is by John Alexander. He said that fasting is forsaking for the sake of. So what might you forsake for the next 40 days for the sake of drawing near to the Lord? And the Lord is faithful. He will show you what it is you should fast from because those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied But also know, as you pray about what to fast from, that the thing that makes you most uncomfortable about giving up is probably the thing that needs to go. And when I say probably, that's my nice way of saying definitely. That is definitely the thing that needs to go. Can you imagine what your dependence on the Lord might look like if you turn to Him after a long day, instead of turning to social media in an effort to dissociate. The Lord can. He longs to hear about your day. Can you imagine what your friendship with the Lord might look like if you abstained from breakfast or abstained from the snooze button? That's mine. To spend that time in prayer, meditation, worship. The Lord can. He would love to spend the morning with you. Can you imagine what prayer life what the Lord might look like if you prayed while folding laundry or doing the dishes instead of watching TV. The Lord can and he would love to take the mundane and turn it into the sacred. Fasting is forsaking something for the sake of your relationship with God and I invite you to pray and fast this Lenten season. With that, I also invite you to share with a couple of friends what your Lenten fast will look like, and commit to praying for each other, checking in frequently, because Jesus wants to guide us out of cycles of sin and temptation through the spiritual disciplines like fasting and praying, and he also wants to do it through community. As you do this together, you will find that prayer is wildly inefficient, because prayer ultimately is releasing control, timing, and hope to the God who has never been in a rush. Prayer is not about doing, not about producing. Prayer is all about being. And I pray that these next 43 days of inefficiency will bless your heart, your life, and your soul. As we end this sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, We pray that you walk away encouraged, that your Father in heaven wants to spend time with you, to have sacred conversations with you through prayer. Our Father in heaven would love to converse and communicate with you in Holy Communion even today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.